defend their faith. That's okay in and of itself. As long as we understand that to, in order to convert the soul to being a God worshiper now through Jesus Christ, you cannot reason somebody into that position. Because the problem as we see it in Scripture is not intellectual. The problem with humanity is not intellectual or informational. The problem with humanity is spiritual. So you could present the most well-framed argument for the existence of God that would get the most trained professional atheist like Sam Harris. Anybody know who Sam Harris is? Ever seen him on TV or videos or something? He goes around. He's an evangelist for atheism, essentially. And he reasons against God and shows how dangerous religion and faith is. Very smart man. Very intelligent man. You, if you could have the most well-crafted defense of the existence of God or the truthfulness of the gospel, the resurrected Christ, all of these things, and you're not going to convert his soul. Because what we know is, again, what we know, and this is not a doctrine of humanity class, it's a doctrine of God class, but what we know from the Bible about humanity is that their primary problem is not intellectual or informational. Paul shows that they had enough of that. What it is is spiritual, okay? And that's what they're trying to show here, that in order for someone to really believe in God the way Scripture requires them to believe in this God and to become worshipers of Him, God has to do something to them, in them. Now let me show you in Scripture, they keep putting the little sections here, 2 Corinthians 4, but let's, let's reason this through. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, look at verse um, 1, we'll just start there. Therefore, Paul says, having this ministry of gospel proclamation, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, there's a reason to lose heart because their message is rejected more than it's accepted. So if you read through the book of Acts, you will see this in Paul's life. The vast majority of the people that Paul proclaims the one true God to reject his message And a good portion of those people that reject the message actually persecute him for it, okay? So they actually get hostile and they're persecuting him. So the vast majority of people are rejecting it. But they don't lose heart. Why? Because we have renounced uh, disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We don't try to use sneaky tactics or worldly wisdom or salesman pitches, you know. Uh, my dad uh, was trained up in a, in a culture of evangelism that they had a little manual they gave everybody at the church and as you went to door-to-door evangel- evangelism, it would train you to do every step of the way what you're supposed to say. And they even had a little picture of the guy there at the door and it showed him pulling out his Bible out of the pocket just at the right time. Like, don't bring that Bible out until it's just the right time and then you bring that in and then you drive home and it's almost like a manual for, you know, 
used car sales that you would get if you took on a job at the used car lot. It, treating, this, treating the idea of evangelism as though it is some kind of sales pitch, okay? But they, they don't do this. Paul doesn't. And he makes this comment in verse 3 that I think is relevant to what we're talking about here. And even if our gospel is veiled, okay, it is veiled to those who are perishing. What do you mean? Well, in their case, the God of this world, we would say the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. In Romans 1, we talked about what human beings do with the knowledge they have, they suppress it in unrighteousness and they exchange the glory of God for images, things that they make, for idols that they make. They exchange over the glory of God. The devil, what we're learning here is this is in part a spiritual issue in which their their eyes, we might say the eyes of their heart that could see the glory, the spiritual eyesight is blinded by the devil and they don't even see the glory of God. So in the gospel, they don't see the glory of God in Christ. In creation, they don't see the cloud of glory behind it. So it's designed by God, of course, to, to show his glory and so people just, oh man, let's worship this God who's created all these things. They don't see it, they're blinded. So, then he goes on to say, he says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your, as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now catch this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. And you'll notice in our translation, it puts quotes around that, right? God said this, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, where did God say something to the effect of this? Let light shine in darkness. Where did he say that? Genesis, right? In creation. God said, let there be light, and it was so, right? He spoke, and light shines forth, right? What Paul is saying is that the mind and heart of the unbeliever is blinded by the devil and darkened with sin. It is... Uh, how does, well, how does it say in Genesis 1? Void and without form, right? It's, it's void without form. There's darkness. And what God has to do, this is what Paul is saying very clearly here. The difference is what Paul, all of a sudden, when Paul's like, I see Jesus Christ as Lord, I see him as Son of God, is that God did a work in his heart. God said it's a creative work by his word. Let light shine. Boom, it shines. You see how that works? So when we're evangelizing people and we're witnessing to people, it's very important that we have all of this in mind, that this is a person who's blinded, their hearts are darkened, they're in spiritual captivity to Satan, and that nothing you say or the way you say it can change that unless God 
by a spirit, takes what you say in the gospel and accompanies it with his power. And it just, boom. So that the person, and then God says, let there be light. That's like some of you can remember that time, probably the moment you were saved, and all of a sudden the light went on. Sometimes Christians will describe it that way. The light went on, and I saw it. Well, what happened? God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then he goes on, but the interesting in verse 7, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Amazingly, Anytime there's success in this idea, okay, so you're witnessing to somebody, they believe. And maybe you think back and say, man, I was kind of bumbling through that. I can't believe that anything good came from that. And yet, that's exactly the point. Because then the power for salvation and the power to make non-worshippers of God worshippers of God comes from God and not from us. Because in the end, it's God that gets all the glory, okay? That all makes sense? Okay, so that's where I, I wanted to begin with what we left off last week. I think that's really important when we're talking about the existence of God, to know that it's great to have information, it's great to be able to dialogue and, and have argumentation, but in the end, we know God has to do something with this person, and that makes us utterly dependent on God. We pray this kind of thing all the time for people, don't we? we may, we're not even conscious of it. But we're like, oh God, please open their eyes so they can see Jesus. God, save them. What are we saying by that? Okay, God, change their hearts. We'll talk about problems with people and say, you know what they need is a heart change. Well, we can't do it. Anything we say, they're gonna do it. We're praying to God. So this is all instinctual, I think, for the Christian. But actually knowing what we're doing, I, I think is helpful, okay? Okay, good. Um, now, one, where we need to begin, I think, uh, is with uh, an, an aspect of God uh, which is called his incomprehensibility. And that's not a word I'm just making up, okay? That's why um, I put in there, this is a technical theological term about God. So when you study about the doctrine of God, you come across this aspect of the simple fact and truth that God is incomprehensible, or we might say fully incomprehensible. He is not completely incomprehensible in the sense that we can't know lots and lots and lots about God and that we can't learn over time more and more and more about God. So there's lots we can know about God, but what we're saying when we say this is that we cannot fully know God nor can we fully know everything about God, nor can we fully know and comprehend any one thing about God, okay? So it almost is like when you're starting out and studying the doctrine of God, it's almost like um, we could be tempted to think, well, what is the point then? Or why continue to go on with this? And that's where we have to remember that um, the seeking of God and the meditating on God is what he uses through his word to teach us more about himself mixed with the circumstances of our lives. So growing in this now, remember, those who seek him diligently expect the reward of knowing him more and experiencing more. Okay, so let's, let's get some tef uh, technical definitions here. I use this Alan uh, Carnes 
uh, C-A-I-R-N-S, all the time when I'm doing a study like this, a very concise little dictionary uh, that's out there that just has these kinds of technical theological terms because I always find myself having to look them back up over time. You don't, you know, some of the, like incomprehensibility I can get, you know, I'm never going to forget that. But other things that I've looked at in the past, I always go, what was that? So it's very helpful to have some kind of dictionary, some kind of work that just gives brief definitions. Of course, now Google can work almost as well, maybe better, as long as you're getting it from uh, proper sources. But he says this, it's the infinite measure of what God is is over what any of his creatures perceive him to be. All right? Let's say that again. The infinite measure of what God is over what any of his creatures perceive him to be. So, you know, in Isaiah 55, isn't it, where the Lord says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts, right? Or Romans 11 says, the depth, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, right? Here he's not going to the heights, he's going to the depths, of these things. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments. How inscrutable your ways. It's way beyond my ability to fully comprehend. So we have these areas of God that we'll study. And, uh, you know, the doctrine of God's justice. One day we'll get to that and we'll be talking about the justice of God. And yet... There's a point where it's too high for us and it goes beyond our ability to grasp because, and the key word in this definition is that God is infinite, the infinite measure. It's the infinite measure of what God is over what any of his creatures perceive him to be. So it's beyond our ability or as Paul says in Romans 11, it's too, the depths are too far for us to fully explore out the elements of God, because of course he is infinite in his being, without end, immeasurable, right? And we are not that way at all. We are finite, very measurable in our being, and he is, so we're trying to explore something that is infinite and immeasurable, and that makes him incomprehensible this doctrine must be kept in mind during theological studies the goal is not to master theology or master God himself I have two master's degrees in seminary I've mastered nothing I think it's comical but then again I got a bachelor's degree when I was married so go figure that out I don't know (laughs) there's nothing here that we can master when we think about God or his ways or his thoughts, or his works, or any of those other things, all right? We're we're beginning with this because it becomes very important about what we're going to talk about in a minute and the essence of being of God, because we're going to be like, huh? And then when we start talking about the persons of God and the one, you're like, huh, right? But we're understanding these 
that God is beyond what we can fully comprehend and know. This is something, though, I think that is very important to know about God when we begin to study God so that we're not trying to confine him into some neat little box, right? We're going to try to put him in a neat little box that we've got all tidied away and figured out. And one of the applications of this, friends, is that we have to continue to allow God to show us in the Bible who he is. You can grow in your knowledge of who he is. And we use the Bible then to let God tell us who he is so that we're not putting anything on God that he would not claim for himself, right? We're understanding that he is incomprehensible. It's a very humbling idea. And it's something that we need to know as we study God and it's something we need to celebrate about God. For some people, when they think about anything that's incomprehensible, it does have a way of agitating their soul. It agitates them. By that I mean not necessarily make them angry, but they get frustrated and then they think to themselves, well, what is the point of continuing to study this? If we can't fully comprehend it, does it really matter? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. We'll see why it very much matters in many different ways. So don't use the doctrine of incomprehensibility as a stumbling block. The best uh, plan for this is that when we come across aspects of God's being that we do not, cannot comprehend, the best way to handle this is with acceptance of what we can know and what it says and worship because an infinite God that you can never fully comprehend is certainly worthy of our worship, actually breathtaking. If you've ever stood in, you know, at the Grand Canyon or saw some marvelous thing, been on the top of a mountain and you feel small, right? Well, that thing that you're looking at that's making you feel small in nature, that is nothing in comparison to the God who made it all and is governing it all at all times. The study of God is meant to be breathtaking and make us feel very small in comparison and give that, that thrill of the heart that one gets when they're, when they're in a situation like that where it's just breathtaking, Okay. And that's what, use it as an opportunity to, to worship. So we must embrace it we, and, and learn to celebrate it. And I'll mention this, when we start talking about the doctrine of the, tri, the triunity of God or the trinity of God, three distinct persons, one Godhead, those types of things that get to be so incomprehensible that you're ne- nobody ever has figured it out fully, that yet they can be summarized in theological statements of truth. They are better to just be left summarized as, example, as simple as this, three distinct persons in one God. Period. Right? I mean, in other words, we'll talk way more about it than that. But what I'm saying is, in the end, when you get to something incomprehensible about God, but yet that you can see clearly revealed in Scripture, you just say, this is what it is. 
This is our theology. This is the truth that's reflected in Scripture, even though I can't wrap my mind around this completely. Does that make sense? You have to be, we have to be able to do that and actually get comfortable in that place where we're making statements about God that we don't fully comprehend and yet we know them to be true and we know why it's important so we can just state it and summarize it and leave it at that. I'm gonna show you a video in a couple weeks about, these are comical videos and um, I might have showed some of you in the, uh, in the systematic theology class and we got to the Trinity and it's kind of a, a spoof making fun of St. Patrick who of course had all these um, little things he tried to do to explain the Trinity like it's like a clover, it's like this or whatever and it's these two guys that are sitting there arguing with him back and forth and said you just became a heretic in this way, you just became a heretic in this way or whatever and then in the end though they get to the point where they just say the doctrine of the Trinity is best just defined and stated and left there. Okay, so that's, this becomes, the reason I'm beginning with this incomprehensibility, it becomes very important um, when we talk about things. Things like we talked about last week and I saw all the discussion and the puzzled looks come on when we talk about God never changes, right? His immutability and immediately we see verses like, well, he repented of what he was gonna do, right? Or uh, different things of this nature and sometimes we get to the point where some of these things are beyond our comprehension. We just state them because we know this is what the Bible clearly teaches, those kinds of things, okay? So he's incomprehensible. Something neat to do with this, I'll just say this. Um, we are, the, the, God is the one whose incomprehensibility is beyond our ability to, to comprehend. On the other hand, a very comforting uh, springboard off of this is that God knows each one of us exhaustively. So here's this incomprehensible God, and one way you can rest in that is because there's nothing he doesn't know about you. And nothing, everything about you, he has explored to the depths of your being. There's nothing. Anybody know the psalm that teaches that? 139, right? Is that what you guys said? Let's look at that for just a minute. I'll just show you a couple of verses out of there. As David contemplated, right, so much about God and his, the incomprehensibility of God, it actually was often turned into devotional thoughts about himself and his relationship to God. So he didn't let this become a stumbling block to his meditations about God. So in Psalm 139, just some of the verses here, he says in verse one, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. This, the idea is known me completely. It's the opposite of what we're saying about God. We can say we're searching you, God, and we know some things about you and we love what we find and we want to know more. But we can't know you the way we are known. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me such knowledge is too wonderful for me it is high I cannot attain it I remember listening to a, um, a sermon on this at a at uh, a Bible school and um, 
maybe because they knew all the kids there were just rascals and sinning and stuff. But the, but the preacher used this passage as like, he knows everything you're doing, you know. He knows your thoughts right now. And the kids are like, oh boy, you know, or whatever. But that's not the intention of this at all. This is a warm, wonderfully love-based relational knowledge that exhausts itself upon David and he loves it, right? It's something to enjoy, and to rest in. And isn't that true even when you're walking through difficult times? I know when I walk through difficult times, I have have trouble sometimes explaining to people what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing, but it's not the same with God, right? Like he already knows and he wants us to pour it out to him the best we can and he's explored that thought. He's discerned it from afar. His love for us is complete. His knowledge of us is complete, right? So I think this can be um, very helpful doctrine to think about. Okay, anything on any of this so far? We've got 10 minutes or so before we break out for questions completely, but um, on this incomprehensibility, because I think that's about it. Oh, no, one more thing I'll say here. Um, Wayne Grudem, in his theology book, put this, I thought it was insightful, and hopefully not too discouraging, but I think, and I think it's on your handout. It is not only true that we can never fully understand God, it is also true that we can never fully understand any single thing about God. His greatness, his understanding, his knowledge, his riches, wisdom, judgment, and ways are all beyond our ability to understand, now catch this, fully, but we can understand those things, but not fully, Thus, we may know something about God's love, power, wisdom, and so forth, but we can never know his love completely or exhaustively, right? It's wonderful, actually, thought. It also means, too, it's also incentive. You know, and, and many of you have experienced this in your Christian life. You may have studied a doctrine at one time or studied something about God at one time, and you learn some things. And then you look back at it in a couple of years and you're studying again. You're like, wow, I, I, don't, I never saw that aspect of this. And it's just this unending unfolding of God's truth to our hearts. And it's what really encourages us to keep going about himself and about his ways. Okay, so it's, it's uh, even any one of his attributes cannot be fully known. So we don't want to use, though, this doctrine of incomprehensibility as a cop-out, okay, about any doctrine, Uh, all doctrines that God has explained to us about himself and his ways, we can't, if he's put it in the word, we can understand it to a degree, okay? So we don't want to use that as a cop-out to say, well, I just don't understand this or whatever. We want to make sure we understand that we can understand. And you remember what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, 2. He said, think over what I say and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Do you remember that verse? Well, that was on the, the soldier and the farmer and different things. But he says, he said, finally, he just breaks in there. And he says, Timothy, think over what I say, and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. What he meant by that isn't that the Lord will give him fullness of understanding in every single thing, but that the way God has designed his word is that if you will give your attention to it, and you will meditate on it, and you will study it, and you will seek after him, you will gain understanding. And he will give you as much understanding as you need in things at whatever particular point you are in, okay? And the rest and where he isn't, where he doesn't give you understanding, you just have to rest in him. You just have to be content with this, you know? 
that I don't understand this fully now. God does. That's enough for me for now. We take things by faith, okay? All right, last thing we're going to talk about. Um, is uh, we're just going to be able to dip into this for the last uh, few minutes here, okay? It's, it's the essence of God, God's essence. Uh, in that handout, you can see that there are four really synonymous terms when we talk about God's essence. And again, this is, these are technical theological terms, okay? And um, we'll just start to break this open here for a few minutes. Uh, essence is also substance or being or nature. Look at the first definition here. The being of God, or we could put there again, the essence of God or the substance of God or the nature of God is his whatness. You see that? It's his whatness. It answers the question, what, and this question at first might take you by surprise and actually you might like it, okay, but it answers the question, what is God? Okay? Now, we know God is a personal being. So, perhaps a better question it could be, in some ways, who is God? But when we're talking about the essence or being of God, we're talking about what makes God, God? What is what differentiates God from everything else? Why is God not us, right? What are those characteristics that make God, God, his being? That's a participle, it's a verb, the being of God. Now, this may sound like out here for a second, but think about this. Everything that is a thing it has an essence, a being, that you would use words to describe it. So you might, if we, if we had a dog run down the aisle, everyone in here would know, that's a dog. Well, how do you know? Well, look at its essence, its being, its substance. It's got the four legs with paws and probably a tail and it's barking and doing all these different things that make it a dog that's clearly distinguishing it from let's say a bird flew in the room nobody's going to go look at the look at the dog flying around it's got its own unique right characteristics attributes being to it essence substance so what is god that's what we're answering here when we talk about his being or nature. So in this quotation that comes from um, Matthew Barrett, he says, the being of God, his whatness, God's essence is not one thing and his existence and attributes another thing, they are one and the same. God is one essence, three persons. Each person is a subsistence, stay with me now, or subsisting relation of the one simple divine essence. Notice that statement, one simple divine essence. Things we can't not get into today, but you will begin to be able to think about these things and what they're saying, trust me, okay? If, you, if we give ourselves to this, when he's saying one simple divine essence, you'll eventually know with saturation what we're talking about here because these are things we're going to reiterate over and over again, okay? If the persons are one in essence, they are one in will, glory, power, and authority as well. 
other terms for essence, substance, being, or nature. Okay? Now, look at this other definition by Alan Carnes here again. Essence, in the study of the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, it is used to denote the single, indivisible, divine essence, as distinct from the three personal subsistences of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And then I put on here this idea of subsistence, a technical word that indicates a personal mode of existence of the divine substance. Thus, in the Godhead, there is but one substance, but three subsistences. By a personal mode of existence is meant a mode or form of the divine essence characterized by certain personal distinction. Okay, all of that is like, wow, okay, what is happening here? When we think, though, about the essence of God, let me just leave us with why this is important and we'll pick up with it next time, okay? We think about what is God, the being of God, the essence of God, his godness, right? Why is it so important to keep emphasizing, okay, the single unity of this essence, all right? I'll show you this. We think about the essence of God, we have to understand that he is, his essence in being is the only one of its kind. So remember what we learned, we started out with Deuteronomy 4, verse 4, the Shema, right? Or Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we said by that, there are at least two implications. One and only, there is no other God, and one in being or essence, okay? So the idea of there being one divine essence becomes so important because Christian theology teaches us that there are three subsistences within the one essence. There are three or three persons within the one divine essence but what we must hold is that all three of those subsistences have in the entirety and fullness the one divine essence okay all right otherwise what we have is how many how many beings how many divine beings are there one. How many divine essences are there? One, right? Remember, essence, being, those are the same, right? I'm just using the same terminology. There's only one. So if the Father had an essence, a divine essence, and the Son had a divine essence that wasn't the same as the Father's, and the Spirit had a divine essence that wasn't the same as the Father and Son's, then how many divine essences would you really have? Three, which means you would have three gods, which means the Muslims who attack us would be right. You are polytheists as opposed to them. They're monotheists, all right? So we have to understand that this idea of God's being in nature, uh, in essence, is undivided, and fully in the three persons so that they each possess in fullness the divine essence or being, okay? In, and we'll leave, I'm gonna leave us with this and we're gonna pick up with this. Then we can start talking about some questions maybe or something, but you you see those two weird uh, weird, uh, words I have in your handout? 
homoousia and homoousia. Anybody notice the difference in those two words? There's only one little difference in those two words. Anybody get? There's an I in the second one. Well, this is a Greek word, so it's the iota, which is, looks the same as a lowercase i in English. That one little letter created a whole lot of controversy that we'll talk about coming up in the church in the fourth century. Because what people started saying is that, yes, there is, there is the essence or the being. That word usia now is the word being. That's the, the Greek word for being, okay, usia. Homo usia, same. So homo means same, same being. And they said the son is the same being or essence as the father, which means the son is, is God in his fullness, okay? And then, of course, they make their way to the, the spirit and they'll say the same thing eventually spirit but the controversy erupted over the son and then there were others like Arius who said no the son is of a different usia than the father he is the first and best created being there is of God and we have Arianism's roots even right now into the present day go talk to a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon okay it's not the same. Jehovah's Witness Bible, as a matter of fact, the New World Translation, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was God, no, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, you see. The Word was a God, not of same usia. But then there were people that said, well, we don't believe that the Son is of homo usia, the same substance as the Father. And over here, though, we don't believe that he's of a different usier substance of the Father. But I'll tell you what. Let's come, to a, let's come to like a middle ground compromise. He is of similar substance to the Father. He's of a similar essence or being. So they inserted one little letter I. Like it, not a big deal. Let's just put that one little letter I in there and then we can all agree to uh, you know, be happy about this thing, that the son is of a similar substance. But guess what? That still maintains that the son is not of the same essence as the father. He is not of the same being as the father. And therefore, he is a different being. He has his own essence. And then logically, you would apply that to the Holy Spirit as well. So now again, friends, you don't have one undivided being of God um, incomprehensibly dwelling in three distinct persons, but you have three distinct beings, and yes, you end up at polytheism. So the idea of understanding the essence of God, this is why we'll review it again next week, right at the beginning, going over this over and over in our mind until we comprehend as much as we can comprehend that there is one divine being who is, uh, exists in three uh, persons who all, sh- who all share, mm, who all exist in the fullness of the one divine being, okay? So that we can say of the Father, He is God, we can say of the Son, he is God. We can say of the Spirit, he is God. And the attributes of all are common and all 
worthy of the same glory, worship, honor, all of those things, okay? So think these things over and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. But we need to understand how important these things are. And can you see even in church history, and we'll talk about this at the Council of Nicaea and the controversy that erupted there over the sonship, uh, over the deity of Christ, how important little things are. How just one little letter can divert you away from what we need to maintain. And we don't see a lot of this in any of the, it's very hard to like turn to one passage to teach about this, but you have to turn to multiple ones that teach the Son is God. And that it was God's design that all men honor the Son just as they honor the Father, right? The Gospel of John, those types of things. Okay, that's enough for tonight. Let's, uh, let's turn it over now. Any thoughts, comments, questions? Questions I could answer. <laughs> Sandy. In listening to this, I sometimes want to pray. Um, I pray to God, and God the Father, and other times I pray to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then I find myself other times in praying directly to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I personally don't think there's a, a problem with that. I do that myself. Sometimes in the sense of, you know, um, I think in the main I pray to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. But in other times, I might praise Jesus or, you know, ask the, you know, him as the chief shepherd to help us lead his people or... Ask for the Spirit's help in prayer because we know that or the gifting. You see what I'm saying? Or other times we know the Spirit brings comfort and applies. We might ask the Spirit for wisdom. So I, um, I, yeah, I think that's, and that just reflects our Trinitarian beliefs, right? You, you already instinctually believe that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. You're, you're revealing that by praying to each one. That's good. Mark. Yeah, you're welcome. That's my privilege. Yes, right. And that's what we'll talk about next week, the, the simplicity of God which doesn't mean God is a simpleton or the way we use it. It means he's undivided in his essence and attributes, which means it isn't as though God is made up of Father, Son, and Spirit, and you put those three things together, and now you have God. This is why when we read in this essence, these are things that you'll get more familiar with terminology, but it's undivided essence. It can't be divided. Okay, in our minds immediately, we start talking about the begottenness of the son. I automatically in my mind just start thinking of, you know, the son springing out of something or what. I mean, and we we put something onto this spirit 
uh, infinite spirit God, and, and that's where our minds get us in trouble. And I think we just got to have, I heard a, a pastor once, a wise man, he said, what should I have in my mind when I think about God? What image? And he said, absolutely nothing. Because as soon as you've made an image of God, you've done the wrong thing, okay? We are commanded not to do that. And simply, he is spirit. One of the catechisms for kids that we taught our kids was, who is God or what is God? God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. In other words, you're trying to communicate to these kids, you can't form something in your mind and say that's God, right? So, good, yeah. Right. Well, I don't, I don't say that to get, get us paranoid, right? I'm just saying like the thought is like if we get, um, you know, we, we don't want to form something that we look in our mind and that's God. Like, a, you know, whatever. You start praying and you're envisioning, you know, you know, an old man with a white beard and all, you know, or whatever in the sky or whatever. We got to be careful with that. So it's more we understand that God isn't made up of parts, um, that look like something. Uh, in Scripture, there are, like in heaven, God can reveal His glory in a unique way. Now, in the, the incarnate Son is physical. We will see Him, you know. But the, the being of the Son of God is infinite and eternal. And so it's, yeah. Yeah, I don't say that though because I know what some people, some people you'll be thinking all week like, oh man, I just prayed and I thought of God like this or whatever. I don't say it to make us paranoid. I'm just saying we just, we want to be careful. So, yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, and we, we'll get into this more with the son and the son and, and the relationship in the Trinity uh, uh, during the time of incarnation, who was separated from the Father? And um, it is our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, God, what, what you'll see in Hebrews 2 is that it was in order for, let's, let me get, let's put it this way. In order for uh, God, the Son of God, to be a sympathetic high priest, what did he have to do? He had to become a man. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. It can't happen. So he becomes like us in every way, right? So we think about the humiliation of Christ in his incarnation, and we see him crying out to the Father, and uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, son, the, the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, was cut off mercilessly for us. The eternal son cannot have been cut off from the father or there would have been change in the Godhead and that's impossible. Now how that all works out and when we talk about the hypostatic union, those are things too that'll get your mind really boiling. We just have to come to a place where we say, this is true, this is what we know and we can't go any further. So I, I know what you're saying and those things can be really tricky. Yeah, okay. Yes, exact, that's exactly the point. 
to become, to bear our sin, to take on himself what we deserve, right? Which is cut off from God. What we talked about this morning, we're not reconciled to God. We are enemies for God, uh, with God, and he put Jesus forward. But the eternal sonship, we are always gonna have to maintain this idea that, as an example, in G, okay, we're told in Colossians 1 that the universe is upheld by the power of the Son of God, right? The eternal word of God. And yet he, he, he's incarnate and you see Jesus in the manger. You have to understand that the eternal Son of God, there was no change in the Godhead and he was upholding the universe by the word of his power. It's amazing, right? He, he never changed. The Godhead didn't shift. The Son assumed a human nature uh, and human body became a man in every way like us, and yet without changing God in the least, without changing those three eternal divine subsistences. Yeah, right? It's just mind, mind-boggling. mind Jason's saying, then, that if I run across something like that, uh-huh. it just says God said it, it's true, and just go on and tell I think so, yeah. I mean, I think you could do that or you can investigate it more and ask for understanding. And, and now, and, but yeah, you, it's okay to come across things we don't quite grasp yet, right? Or maybe never will and, and walk through that and be okay with that. I think we need to be okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yes, exactly. Yep. I saw one more hand. We'll take one more. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, I often tell my girls, God tells, lets me know about you guys when I need to know, and I could care less about hmm. anything else. I'm not going to search yeah. it. But at the same time, we have a, our lifetime to read the scripture, and I think for me, God has revealed things different times in life, in different circumstances. But I have that assurance that when I read God's word, I'm going to know, not, not necessarily know everything about him, mm-hmm. but like you said, I'm more understanding of, you know, what I'm reading. And yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, let's, uh, we'll close it there at six o'clock. We'll pray and thank God for our time. Father, we do thank you for this time. We thank you because we, we asked you to help us and, and I think in ways you have, many ways, uh, come to a more of appreciation of who you are. And I pray that that would continue. And now, even now that we would go live as though we are living in your presence at all times, which we are, and that we would want to glorify you and, and just enjoy uh, you and who you are. Um, and maybe even, Father, for this week, these thoughts about your incomprehensibility, thinking about you knowing us and caring for us. I pray that for some here that would be comforting to just be able to rest in that this week and trust you. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, thank you.